So, here we are. Uh, my name is uh, Steve Armstrong, and I'm happy to share the elevated stage here with my long-term Dharma colleagues, uh, Deborah Ratner-Helzer and Mark Nunberg. Seems like it's been a long time we've been hanging out in this scene for a while, so uh, it's nice to be back. Uh, since we've all been traveling and checking in and uploading a lot of information, why don't we sit quietly for a few minutes and uh, then we'll offer you some information for the retreat. So I won't offer any instructions uh, right now, but uh, just do your usual, whatever that is. Actually, you might just reflect on what it is that made now the time of your life to be on a retreat like this. Why now? What's going on in your life that makes it important? And just to reflect a little bit on all the conditions that you had to get in place to be able to get away from your usual uh, obligations and commitments to come to this place of physical seclusion to do this kind of work towards mental seclusion.
Well, welcome. Um, it's nice to be back. It's nice to see some of you that are familiar and a lot that are new to my memory, which doesn't mean that we haven't met. This means that it seemed like it's new. Uh, the comment that I've received most uh, frequently and inquiringly since I uh, arrived here uh, a couple days ago was, wow, what's this retreat about? All this awareness stuff. Awareness, awareness, awareness. So if you happen to have looked at the uh, schedule, you'll see that it's uh, awareness upon awakening, awareness while sitting and chanting the refuges and precepts, awareness while eating, awareness while walking, awareness while standing, awareness while... We didn't put in everything that you'll be doing with awareness, but just, I mean, you are going to have to go to the toilet in here somewhere. And But what uh, I want to uh, emphasize is that what we're going to be um, encouraging and pointing to is this, the simplicity of awareness that you can sustain from wake-up throughout every activity of the day until you fall asleep in the evening. So already you should be put on notice that you're going to have to not try too hard or you'll get exhausted and not try too little or you won't be aware. And so it's going to be that uh, place right in the middle between um, patience with the way things are, and persevering in recognizing the way things are. And this is the simplicity of awareness, which, which I point to by saying it is nothing more than remembering to recognize present moment's experience. Is that simple enough? All we're going to be doing is remembering to recognize the present moment's experience. That's pretty easy, right? You understand what I'm saying? Remembering to recognize the present moment's experience. <clears throat> okay. Are you aware that you're sitting? Yeah. When did you become aware that you were sitting? Just when I asked the question? Actually, we've been sitting for a while. Uh, are you aware that you feel warm? Yeah. When did you become aware that you were feeling warm? You see, we can, we can be feeling warm and we can be sitting and experiencing that, but not being aware of it. This awareness is something in addition to just experiencing. So what we're going to be cultivating is this capacity of mind that recognizes present moment's experience. But because it's not a firmly established habit for most of us yet, uh, then a lot of the instruction will be reminding you to remember, to recognize the present moment's experience. So what we're actually cultivating is remembering, not remembering the past or remembering anything that we've learned before, but remembering that we're alive in this moment and there is an experience happening to be aware of. Because, as the Buddha said, those who are mindful, those who are aware, are alive. And those who are not mindful are not aware that they're alive. 
they're as if dead. And it's true. We go through life uh, kind of sleepwalking on automatic pilot much of the time, right? You can nod your head yes, or you can shake your head no, okay? We're going through life. A lot of it's kind of sleepwalking on automatic pilot, right? Yes, okay, all right. This is an interactive retreat, folks. So, <laughs> because, um, you know, we walk through life uh, half asleep because so much routine, so much repetition, and it's so familiar. You know, when you stop and think, at this age, how many times have you brushed your teeth in this life? Quite a few, right? And just think of how many more times you're going to brush your teeth in the remainder of your life, given your, you know, the uh, statistics of what your expected life length is going to be. Now just think, if you could practice awareness just during the times when you're brushing your teeth, from now till the last time you brush your teeth, you would have several months of mindful awareness. And that's just brushing your teeth. And then if you take going to the toilet, or showering, or answering the phone, or any other thing that we do over and over and over again, every day, sometimes many times a day, and certainly every day of our life, we would have a very strong habit of mindfulness. We'd have a very strong awareness practice. But somehow we, we tend to uh, overlook the familiar, the uh, routine, the nothing special. We just take it for granted we're going to wake up. We just take it for granted. We just eat. We just go to the toilet. We shower. We bathe. We brush our teeth. We look at the bulletin board here a lot. And we just take it for granted. You know, and we don't pay attention. We're not aware that that's what we're doing when we're doing it. So that's why I put the schedule down in the way I did. Awareness doing everything. Okay? So that we don't give more priority to sitting in the hall to cultivate this kind of awareness, which is really posture. And we don't give that any more priority than standing in the lunch line or looking at the bulletin board or taking a shower as an opportunity to develop awareness. So, really, everything we do, uh, you do with the mind, right? The mind, you, you, can't, you can't do anything without the mind being present. All we're asking you to do is recognize this mind, this mind that's knowing what's going on, moment by moment. Of course, there are many different um, traditions of practice. There's many different techniques. There's all kinds of teachings and teachers uh, and so many of you have practiced with different teachers, teachings, traditions, and they're all good. They're, they're, all, they're all beneficial if they're helping you to, to be aware in any way. Uh, so we're not, we're not offering uh, an alternative to what you've already learned. Whether you're paying attention to the breath at the nostrils, or you're paying attention to the breath at the abdomen, or you're sweeping your attention through the body, or you're noticing the awareness itself, or you're noticing the posture, it, all good. So we're not offering anything other than that, except to suggest that you really work on the continuity of the awareness.
we'll be offering some instruction, we'll be offering some techniques, we'll be offering some understanding. But please understand that we're not asking you to do something, uh, we're not asking you to abandon what you have learned, but to uh, complement what you have learned and what you've practiced before. So sometimes people will think, oh, I can't follow the breath anymore because they're talking about paying attention to the awareness of the mind. And that's not so. You know, whatever you do, you can do with awareness. That's my little blurb. The schedule is also a little bit different for those of you who've been on retreats before. There's a lot of uh, scheduled sittings, scheduled meals, and scheduled periods of being in motion. And rather than just saying sitting, walking, sitting, walking, uh, a lot of times the walking period or the period between scheduled sittings is getting up, leaving here, going to your room, rummaging around, coming back to the dining room, getting a cup of tea, drinking your tea, walking to the toilet, and then your walking period's all used up. So if you were waiting to practice awareness while walking, you had lots of opportunities there, but you might have thought you had to be walking back and forth in one place, and you would have missed it. Instead, we're asking you to, to be aware of any time you're in motion. So from the time you shift out of your sitting posture to the time you get back to your sitting posture, when you're not in motion, that's the practice. That's what we're pointing to that kind of activity, whatever you do in that period of time, that activity that requires you to move about. Then you'll see that in the afternoon, there's this period of awareness and motion after lunch for a half hour. And then at 2.15 to 5.15, it just says self-scheduled awareness practice Sitting, standing, in motion, and there'll be occasional guided sittings. Actually, what we mean is that you're free to find your own rhythm of what you need to do, whether it's stand, sit, move, do some yoga, tai chi, or something like that. Uh, We want to give you the opportunity to find your own rhythm of what you need and to make your own schedule. So this is going to require a little um, self-reliance. The schedule is good, and it's good that we do some of our practice together, sitting, uh, meals, and chanting, and things like that. That's a good support. Uh, When you practice with others in a common schedule, then it can really provide a lot of um, support. And when we practice our own schedule or practice at our own rhythm, you know, you'll be coming into the hall just as people are getting up and leaving and you'll wonder, what am I doing? Maybe I'm at the wrong time. Or you come into the hall and nobody's here and you think, oh, maybe I'm supposed to be somewhere else. And Just like in life. <laughs> you know, people are going in all kinds of directions and you're going in your own pace, your own place. So it's just getting used to being on your own, finding your own rhythm, doing what feels called forth from you, rather than taking it as a directive from us or the schedule. Now, if you have not been on a retreat where there have been this kind of self-scheduled periods of time, you might think, 
if I like this or not. And and it's that's understandable. We we we're more comfortable with what we're familiar with. But uh and in the first few days you might wander around never quite settling down onto any particular schedule. Well, that's the whole idea. <laughs> you don't actually have to think about what you're going to schedule or how you're going to schedule it. You just will move from one activity to another or one um, lack of activity to one activity to another and just let it unfold that way. While the first few days might feel a little, might feel a little at loose ends and a little unsure and a little unconfident, usually within a few days people trust themselves more and by the end of the retreat everyone appreciates that this off-leash period of practice is really quite nice. And most people find it uh, beneficial. So I'm trusting that you'll have a similar type of experience, but you'll have to be aware and let us know about that yourself. So then, let's see, schedules. Oh, some of the afternoons, and we've... um, Deborah and Mark and I talked about it today. We have some afternoon Dharma infusion events for you. <laughs> I don't know how else to call it because it's going to be, it's all about being aware, but it might be practicing movement with Mark or practicing uh, some guided uh, evocation from. Uh, Deborah, or we may have some uh, question and answer periods. Uh, you'll have to keep an eye on the bulletin board because they will be scheduled randomly and at different times in the afternoon. So you can't get too comfortable with the schedule because it's going to change, just like life. Right? And then finally, in the evening, at 9 o'clock after the... Um, uh, Dharma talk and a, and a short period of uh, movement. In the evening at nine o'clock, we will have our last uh, group sitting together and we will be offering some reflections uh, on the day, a way to reframe your experience, a way to understand your experience that is uh, reaffirming of your efforts and uh, encouraging of your uh, patience with this wild mind and with your own uh, faith, confidence, and doubt. Uh, because inevitably, if you're practicing well, it'll be difficult. <laughs> I know that sounds kind of uninviting, but that's the way it is. Um, we do come into some challenging experiences, and it's good to have a reminder of just how valuable this work is. Even if it's unpleasant, even if it's challenging, even if you don't like it, it's really valuable. So we're going to invite you all to come to those nine o'clock sittings in the evening as a way to uh, honor your commitment in being here and not just uh, fading away uh, early, but to extend your day a little bit in the evening. First couple of evenings will be a little shorter sitting, but uh, towards the middle of the retreat, we'll lengthen them out to a sitting. Okay, yeah, so you're next. Mark is going to speak a bit about 
some of the understandings to allow us to be here. Welcome everyone. <clears throat> really the the refuges that we do and we'll be doing every morning, it's really a way of uh, raising some energy by remembering what we're doing and really grounding what we're doing with what's here and now. A lot of times when people hear a word like the refuge, taking refuges, it may be the sort of idea that we're asking for help, seeking help from somewhere outside of ourselves. But many of you know the Buddha's teachings are really about self-reliance. And uh, we have this mind and body. And it, the, you know, to be frank, it's a bit of a mystery to us most of the time. And uh, we have a lot of habits around not really wanting to be here in the experience of the body and mind. So we create this ritual, really, where maybe early in the morning, like we do here on retreat, but maybe at home, once you're back at home, finding the time every day where you remember what you can trust. And uh, in a way, I think it's, we could sum up part of what the Buddha was teaching that there's a real power to directing our mind, the power of intention. And the mind, our minds, they're intending all the time, but just we're unaware of the intentions in our mind and we're unaware of the effects. So why not, you know, once a day, like we do on retreat, early in the morning, gathering here in the hall. And we'll do it in a very traditional way, taking the three refuges of the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. And I'll explain in just a few minutes what that means. But the idea is to really see the ritual as a way of remembering what intention I really care about or what intention I really trust. Because a lot of those other intentions, like I said, they have momentum. So let's build the momentum, having now been thoughtful, what do we trust? So you may not you know, initially use the word Buddha to describe what you really trust, but you might find it useful upon reflection. And you might trust that person who lived 2,500 years ago, trust what he taught, but the idea is somehow to make it real here and now. So when we trust the Buddha, we're trusting this quality of the mind that can be aware and can be intimate with the conditions of the moment, the experience, the objects of body and mind can be intimate, can be aware, and not oppressed, not pushed around, not needing the moment to be different. So we're talking about freedom here and now, not freedom later when I'm out of here. You know, if I could just figure out how to get out of my mind, it's so crazy, or 
get out of my life circumstances are so messy. And we start imagining. And it's interesting, isn't it, that these imaginings also torment our mind all the time. So even on an an intellectual level, we can sense that trusting the mind that can be aware of any particular circumstance, any particular condition, doesn't mean it's going to be pleasant. It just means we're practicing, remembering that we can take refuge in the awareness. It's like this now. This experience of the body, this experience of the mind is being known. And so what does the Buddha know? Buddha knows Dhamma. So we take refuge in Buddha, this natural wakefulness. Of course, although it's natural, it may not be the strongest habit in the mind, which is why we come together and we train. This is what a Buddhist meditation retreat is all about. We come and we're training in these things that we trust, these three refuges. We trust the awareness, waking up to Dhamma. So this is another Pali word, Dhamma. A lot of you have heard more often maybe the word Dharma, which is the Sanskrit equivalent, sometimes getting translated as the teachings of the Buddha. But the teachings of the Buddha point the mind toward the way it is. Buddha knows Dhamma the way it is. This wakeful quality of the mind can open and be free, intimate with the way it is. And we've all had at least glimpses of moving in this direction, right? Certainly we've had glimpses of our mind not okay at all with the way it is, really shutting down, really being rageful, really being lustful or greedy. And I'm assuming we can remember moments where the mind, the clarity of the mind, fearless presence, kind, loving presence, intimate with the conditions. And there's a, there's a very unique, initially unique, it stands out, quality of, of stability and freedom that we taste, the mind tastes when Buddha knows Dhamma. And again, you may not like initially the way using those two words, Buddha and Dhamma, but every human being, when they experience Buddha knowing Dhamma, has a sense, this is the way. This is the way to be a human being, Buddha knowing Dhamma. And one of the things we see arising out of those moments when there is that clarity, being fearless and intimate and kind and comprehending the way it is, what's coming and going, what we see coming out of that is Sangha. That's the third refuge. We see a beautiful, skillful response in the moment. And we, we really appreciate that. We're grateful for those moments when we can show up, we can be clearly aware, fearlessly aware, patient, continuously present, and respond in a way that surprises even us. Like, boy, that was handled pretty well. In the past, I probably would have reacted probably would would have screwed it up, but I handled it pretty well. Well, 
That's sangha. Sometimes we notice it in another person, you know. We see somebody, they're in the moment, Buddha knowing Dhamma, and what they say, what they do, what they don't say, seems to really fit. And we say, sangha, you know. You know, in a superficial sense, we say the retreat sangha, the retreat community, or the sangha at IMS, or the Buddhist sangha in America, we use it generally to mean, you know, spiritual community. But the spiritual community we really take refuge in is that wise spiritual community. Like when wisdom is showing up, when the mind, that person's mind or our mind is intimate with the way it is, Dhamma. And so the response of that mind, what it does, the quality of the intention, it's really beautiful. And when we notice and appreciate that beauty, we call it Sangha. So even though it may seem like, uh, if you haven't done it before, like a strange ritual, especially because we usually chant using the Pali language, it connects us with all the other people, no matter where they are from, you know, they use this language that they used at the time of the Buddha or a language very similar to the language they spoke at the time of the Buddha to remember that, yeah, I really trust wakefulness because it can connect, it can open to the way it is and it allows for this beautiful, skillful response or sangha. Buddha knowing Dhamma, expressing sangha. So these are the refuges. And when you chant them, you can just bring to mind some of what I've said tonight and some of what you're appreciating directly in your own experience. How you see that trust in Buddha in Dhamma and in Sangha. And the other thing we do at the beginning of retreats is we take the five precepts and Deborah is going to speak about that now. If you'd like to have a seventh inning stretch for a moment, feel free. a lot of talking here on the first night when we've arrived after all of our busy rushing to get here and sit still for nine days. I wanted to share a little story tonight and talking about the precepts and about this retreat container that we create here which is such an essential part of the experience. This is really why we come here to practice in community together like this, is because of this amazing uh, energy and support that we have in a big group like this, in an environment like this that's been uh, so finely tuned and optimized over so many years to, to give the greatest possible support to this practice. So we, we do that through this practice of sila, of, of uh, awareness in, in action, awareness of our behavior, of conducting ourselves through our action and through our speech in a way that's supportive of our, of our own practice and supportive of 
everybody else's practice, supportive of this community as a whole. It's, it's always a little bit magical how we come in here the first night, kind of this ragtag band of, you know, individual people. And, you know, after the opening talks, we go back to the dorms and there's kind of the shuffling around and settling in that happens. And then the bell rings tomorrow morning and we wake up into the silence and it's like, all of a sudden it's a retreat. <laughs> That's really kind of magical. And, and that, can, that only happens because each of us has made that commitment to really be careful to be intentional, to be aware in how we're behaving here. So there's a lovely story that comes from the suttas about one time when the Buddha went to visit a group of the elder monks, the venerable Anuruddha, uh, Nandiya, and Kimbila, who were living together, the three of them, at uh, a deer park. And when uh, the venerable Anuruddha first saw the Buddha coming, he, he called to his companions, he said, our teacher is approaching, and they made ready a seat for the Buddha, a nice, comfortable, clean place for him to sit, and they brought clean water for him to bathe his feet, and they took his robe and his bowl when he came, and, and, and ever after he'd kind of tidied himself up and everybody had gotten comfortable, the Buddha engaged them in a little bit of conversation, and he asked them, I hope, Anuruddha, that you are all living in concord, with mutual appreciation, without disputing, blending like milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. To which the Venerable Anuruddha replied, Surely, Venerable Sir, we are living in concord, with mutual appreciation, without disputing, blending like milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. The Buddha went on to ask, But Anuruddha, how do you accomplish this? How do you live in this way? And Venerable Anuruddha explained that, as to that, I think in this way, it is a gain for me, it is a great gain for me that I am living with such companions. I maintain bodily acts of loving kindness towards those, both openly and privately. I maintain verbal acts of loving kindness towards them, both openly and privately. And I maintain mental acts of loving kindness towards them, both openly and privately. I consider, why should I not set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do? Then I set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do. We are different in body, venerable sir, but we are one in mind. So this is really a lovely story that captures the, the spirit of Sila and the spirit of this container that we create here. And there's these five basic precepts, the ones that are on the sheet here, which probably most of you are familiar with. If not, they're, they're relatively self-explanatory, at least in, in the most obvious level. But they're really just about taking care to live in a way that is mutually supportive, not to bother each other, basically, and also not to bother ourselves. So that we have this community where there's a sense that we have each other's backs. We're looking out for each other. Um, to somebody that's never done this before, it can seem very strange. You know, we come here and live with a hundred other people in relatively close proximity for, you know, this period of time that we're here, not making eye contact, not speaking, not gesturing, you know, not writing notes, no kind of communication, um, seemingly abandoning all of the normal social ties that we usually have in the course of our lives with other people. And yet there's this way in which we're, we're so much more intimately connected through the silence that we're not uh, relating to each other through the normal filters of, oh, well, is this person going to like me? Or are they not going to like me? What are they going to think of me? Are they going to treat me nicely if I treat them nicely? Kind of all of that um, feedback that usually dictates our social interaction is it's not available here. 
So there's other motivations. There's the motivation of just real genuine kindness and caring for each other, wanting to support each other. We talk about this quality of love and kindness as being unconditional. So when we're, while we're here, our behavior is not dictated by some desire to get back, whether it's a good feeling about ourselves or some particular response from a person, some particular uh, reaction that we're going to get, but just simply by knowing that we're living in a way that is attentive, that's caring, that's compassionate, that's supportive. And that, that attitude of caring that we bring into how we are here naturally is going to inform uh, the, the internal work that we're doing as well, the introspection. That when we have that attitude of caring and attention in how we're being externally, that supports how we are internally. So this practice of, of sila also becomes a great, uh, strong foundation for the whole edifice of our practice. And then at those times when yogi mind strikes, which if you've been on a re- retreat before, you're probably familiar with. You know, we get a few days into the retreat, we're starting to really get quiet, concentrated, and little tiny things start to grow in importance, <laughs> both, both, the, both the beautiful and the ugly. So we, we may notice our you know, future life partner sitting across the hall you know, because they've got just the perfect walk. They just walk so gracefully. That's the one for me, you know. Um, or we may notice that, that yogi, they're just, they're just breathing too loudly, just all the time, you know, it's driving me crazy. And, you know, they become our, our Vipassana vendetta. So there, there comes a point as we get a, a little ways into the retreat when everything starts to really magnify and get amplified. And we lose a little bit of perspective. So at those times, we have the list. You know, that's why we have the list. <laughs> we can come into the hall, look at it, there it is. Okay, what is really our commitment, what's really our deeper intention. Can we let go of those little things? You know, can we set aside what our preferences are and do what these other venerable ones wish so that we can blend like milk and water and keep that, that larger perspective on, um, you know, it's such a great gain for us to be here with this, this group of like-minded people that are all willing to do this crazy thing with us to help support our practice, you know, and that, that's in the scheme of things, that's such a great gain compared to all these little nitpicky things that can creep in. So we cultivate that attitude of just unconditional caring. The first five precepts uh, address very directly how we interact with others, which is also more supportive for our practice. And then the, the next three, for those who would like to take eight precepts, which we'll also offer here, give us the opportunity to just explore a little bit more consciously what's really necessary and what's really most supportive to our practice here. We can come into retreat with a lot of assumptions. Um, I was just teaching at the Forest Refuge during the month of July and I had a conversation recently with a young man who came into an interview and he said, well, you know, at home I, you know, make sure I get enough sleep, I make sure I get enough good healthy food, I make sure I get enough exercise. And, you know, isn't it even more important in this very demanding retreat environment to keep all that up, you know, to to keep the system running as well as possible? Um, So we can come in with assumptions about what's actually going to be most supportive of our practice. But then we may find we get a little into retreat, we get quieter, we get slower, we're not doing so much. Um, Maybe it's a relief to let go of that evening meal, you know, those few crackers and grapes or whatever it is, and just skip the whole uh, drama of going to the dining hall for the evening meal. Uh, maybe it's a re- relief to, you know, put away the blow dryer, um, you know, put away the jewelry, whatever it is, and just not have to worry about that. So these, these last three precepts give us a chance to explore a little bit. 
And I think there'll be a sign up on the board. So you can decide at any time if you'd like to try out the eight precepts. Um, there'll be a little bit of extra juice and some hard candies in the evening for those of you that aren't taking uh, the evening snack. Um, so just let the kitchen know if you'd like to start or stop. It's really not a big deal. It's an exploration. Um, and we're also going to offer another support for uh, the Times of Yogi Mind when that hits, which is uh, there'll be an opportunity tomorrow to renounce your device, whatever that might be that you brought with you. Which again, at this, at this beginning period of the, the retreat, we can think, oh God, I'm just so happy to put that thing away in my suitcase and not look at it for nine days. But then we get a few days into the retreat and it can start to beckon to us from the back of the closet, you know, That's when the yogi mind sets in. So it, it, it can be a good practice, a very supportive practice to just hand that over to the office and we don't have to think about it for the rest of the retreat. So as, as Mark said, we're going to go ahead and chant the refuges and the precepts now as a formal opening to the retreat. Is there anybody who needs a sheet? as Mark said, we like to do this in the traditional form in the, the Pali, um, which it, it has a lot of just significance of the, the tradition that goes with it. So for, for centuries, for millennia really, people have recited exactly the same formula in this, this universal language of Pali, the ancient language of the teachings. And still now today, so it, it helps to unite us with the, the community of people all around the world that are doing this. So not only us right here, but thousands of people all around the globe that are reciting exactly the same uh, formula and the same universal language of the teachings. And uh, there's a lot of uh, old yogis here who are going to be able to carry this very well, but we'll do a call and response maybe the first couple of times for those that are new. So if you know that you'd like to take the eight precepts at this point, you can just continue on through those last three. If you're not taking those right now, you can just listen while um, everybody else does those and then join back in. Namo, Namo, Tassa Bhagavato, Arahato, Samma Sambuddhasa, Namo, Tassa Bhagavato, Arahato, Samma Sambuddhasa, Namo, Tassa Bhagavato, Arahato, Samma Sambuddhasa, Buddham, Saranangachami, Dhammam, 
Saranangachami Sangam Saranangachami Dutiyampi Buddham Saranangachami Dutiyampi Dhammam Saranangachami Dutiyampi Sangam Saranangachami Tatiyampi Buddham Saranangachami Tatiyampi Dhammam Saranangachami Tatiyampi Sangam Saranangachami Panati Pata Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Adinadana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Abramacharya Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Musawada Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Surabharya Majapamadatana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Vikala Bojana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Natcha Gita Wadita Visukadasana Malaganda Vilepana Dharana Mandana Vibhusanatana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Uchasayana Mahasayana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Idame Silam Magapalanyanasa Pachayo Hotu Sadu Sadu Sadu
So for those that would like to undertake the additional renunciation of their devices tomorrow morning in the uh, sit with the instructions, 30, 8.15, at 8.15, yeah, we'll have an opportunity for you to uh, bring your devices uh, up and uh, place them in a basket. There'll be envelopes by the bulletin board for you to put them in. And actually, probably in the office is the safest place for them, really. So you can be completely confident in handing them over. I just want to relate uh, the experience I had last week. With, uh, I was leading a retreat for young adults age 18 to 35, and there were uh, 39 uh, retreatants. And, you know, those who grew up uh, who are of the age 18 to 35, they've lived their whole life with these cell phones and uh, other devices. And I was really skeptical. You know, I thought, wow, we're going to invite them to uh, undertake their retreat and invite them to let their cell phones do their own retreat. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I was really skeptical that there was going to be much response. And yet, Actually, about 25 of the 39 came forward, and it was really a moving ceremony to, to really see that people were aspiring, aspiring, that was the aspiration, to really learn how to live without this constant nag. I mean, we, we need these cell phones. It's, it's not just a phone, it's a lifestyle, we know. And yet, it'd be pretty commanding and demanding uh, instrument in our life and to uh, learn that we can actually live quite well without them is a powerful uh, wisdom to gain for yourself. At the end of the retreat we had the basket of phones, they were all in the basket, we put it in a nice obvious place where they could uh, see them, to get them, and yet three people left without them. <laughs> uh, or got to their cars, you know, before they realized, oh, wait a minute, I'm missing something here. And so, you know, as much as you may feel attached to it, you may feel very detached from it uh, quite quickly, uh, if you try. So just to encourage you to consider that act of renunciation. And if, as often is the case, you have arrangements with others who are not here, that you're going to check in every day, or you always have for the last, you know, eight, eight or ten years, uh, you might send them one last text and just say, you know, by the way, I've, I'm going I'm to try something different for nine days. Uh, I'm going to put my, my phone in a retreat, <laughs> in a silent retreat mode. <laughs> and uh, I know that sounds radical and kind of like, oh my, what's he talking about? He's, he's out of his mind. No, I'm not. Uh, I'm just inviting you to consider the possibility. But if you do choose to put your phone in uh, one of the envelopes out there, mark your name on it, please be sure to turn it off. Because there, <laughs> there were a few that kept kind of buzzing and ringing through, and we had to figure out how to shut them off. So please shut them off so that the people in the office won't be listening to them for the next eight days, okay? All right. So you can uh, ponder on that. Just how valuable that might be to live a little more aligned with the pace of your own mind and body without the influence of external externalities. Are we done?
we done? Thank you very much. Let's take some rest. Uh, some kind soul is going to ring the bell to call us out of our slumber and awaken us to practice the Dharma. So thank you very much, whoever's going to ring the bell in the morning. And um, we'll see you for pra- practice then. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.